Well, good morning, church family. Uh, this is the middle of December. This is the last week for kids as they are looking forward to Christmas holidays. This is when university students start returning home uh, to their families. I remember when, uh, when I was in university, I was dating this beautiful young woman named uh, Lindsay. Here's a picture of us back then, 18 years ago. And it was, uh, it was really around this weekend, 18 years ago, when I proposed to Lindsay. And... Um, now, I got to say, I, we've had an amazing uh, marriage. We had a beautiful wedding, but I totally botched the whole proposal thing. When I, I was just talking to Tommy while I was playing drums this morning about how he pulled off his engagement with friends were involved and there was a surprise and uh, this whole other generation of young men and how they do proposals and everyone's capturing it on video and it just, it, I just botched it. I just flat out botched it. The, the, we had, uh, we, were, we were supposed to be up at Camp Minioe, which is where we met, and we were going to be up there in the wintertime, and I had planned to propose then, but then the ring wasn't ready because I was using my grandmother's a diamond in Lindsay's engagement ring, and, uh, but we were up there at camp, and, and I, I just blurted it out. I just, I just want to marry you. And then, and, but then a, a week later when we were coming home from, uh, from school, she was at Western, and I was at Queen's, and we went to uh, her favorite park in Mississauga down on Lake Ontario. And then I got down on my knee, and there were no cameras. There was no surprise. There was no big to-do, but she said yes, and that's the most important uh, thing. And then on the way home, we got pulled over by the ride program. So the first person to ever find out our good news of our engagement was a police officer. And I was so nervous. I just like, I'm so happy. I don't want to act drunk uh, right now. And I don't want to have to walk, uh, walk the line um, uh, on, on the night that we got engaged. But that, that's our engagement story. And this is a story that I'm sure Ruth and Boaz would have told time and time again. This is the story of their engagement. The title for today's message is Midnight Marriage Proposal. Midnight Marriage Proposal. So just a, a bit of background for those of us who may be tuning in for the first time. We're in the series in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth starts with this family of a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. He had two sons and there was a famine in the land. They were living in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but there was no bread. And rather than turning to the Lord, which is what God had attended, they turned away and went to Moab, which was really enemy territory at the time. And their sons marry Moabite women. One was named Orpah. The other was named Ruth. And tragically, Elimelech dies. And the two sons die. And these three widows are left, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. Orpah decides to go back to Moab. Ruth surprisingly, decides to go with her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. And God had instituted this, this poverty alleviation program in the Old Testament called gleaning, that when people were harvesting, they weren't supposed to go all the way to the edge. They were supposed to leave the margins of the crop for those who were marginalized, for those who, who were struggling financially. And so Ruth went out into a field and she happened to go into the field of this individual named Boaz who showed her radical kindness. And we find out that he was actually a relative of, of Naomi, which is going to be uh, important. But here we come to Ruth and Boaz having a DTR. They're having a define the relationship, a conversation, which ends up in a marriage proposal. 
But it all begins with what I want to call an unclear plan. It begins with an unclear plan. Check, check out chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So this is Naomi's plan. Naomi wants to get Ruth married. Naomi is thinking in the future that, that Naomi won't always be there for Ruth, but really it's Ruth who's been there for Naomi. But we see here Naomi growing as as a follower of the Lord. We see her growing in her faith. You see, she's no longer just focused on herself. She came back to Bethlehem completely myopic, completely just looking at herself, worried about herself. I went away full. I come back empty. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. Me, me, me. Everything's sad. She doesn't even bother to introduce Ruth. She doesn't even notice Ruth. But now, now that Boaz has entered the picture, she's looking through Boaz and seeing the Lord. And she's seeing the hesed of the Lord, the, the steadfast love of God. And when you get a glimpse of the love of God, that allows you to stop looking at yourself and to actually begin to look into the interests of others. That's what, it was Ruth's understanding of the hesed of God that allowed Ruth to make that sacrifice to go with Naomi. It was Boaz's understanding of the hesed of God that allowed him to be so radically kind and generous to Ruth. So Naomi lays out this plan, and it's rather unclear. She says in verse 2 that Boaz is winnowing barley, and she says he's winnowing barley tonight. Now, how does Naomi know this? I don't, well, all I can say is she's a mother-in-law, and those of you who have mother-in-laws know, mother-in-laws just find a way of knowing things, okay? They, they just find, so we don't know how, what kind of reconnaissance she went on to, to figure this out, but mother-in-laws just find a way to figure stuff out, and I know mine is watching uh, right now. So she says he's winnowing barley at the threshing floor. What is winnowing barley? Well, remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, when Ruth was gleaning, and then it says she had to beat it because she needed to separate. Remember how barley comes in these stalks, but then it needs to be separated into these tiny little kernels. We can get a, a picture on the screen just to remind you we've got the stalks and these, these tiny little kernels. Well, a threshing floor was a flat, rocky area on a hill, and they would bring all of the stalks of barley there, and then, let's go to the next picture, they would take a pitchfork and throw it up into the, into the air, and they would let wind and gravity do the rest. The wind would blow away the lighter chaff or the stalk, and then the heavy your kernels would fall to the ground. So it was the way that it's, it's how they separated the, the nutritious part of the barley from the part that is just waste or, or chaff. And you did this at night because there was a nice, cool, consistent breeze blowing at night. So Naomi has found out that tonight's the night that Boaz is going to the, to the threshing floor. Then she says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Now at first glance, it seems like 
Naomi's telling Ruth, like, get dressed up, you know? Put on your best, your best outfit and do your hair and anoint yourself, wash yourself. But that's not exactly what is going on here. There's a parallel passage in 2 Samuel 12, uh, verse 20. If we compare these two passages, notice how Naomi is telling Ruth to wash and to anoint herself and to put on her cloak. And we see David do the exact same thing in 2 Samuel 12, 20. He washed and he anointed himself and he changed his clothes. Now, David, when he took those steps in 2 Samuel 12, he was communicating to those around him. His, his son had just died. He was communicating to those around him that I am finished with mourning. I'm not doing the sackcloth and ashes thing anymore. I'm, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not showing the cultural symbols any longer of grief. I am moving on. And really what Naomi is telling Ruth right now, so we haven't been told this, but Ruth has been dressing like a widow. Whatever culturally you would put on, no, we would wear, you know, you'd wear black, right? In, in, our, in our culture, different cult, other cultures wear white. Different cultures have different symbols for what it means that I'm in mourning, I'm grieving. Now, you wouldn't go and, and ask a widow in mourning out on a date or ask them to marry you. And what Naomi is saying is, okay, it's time. It's time for you to close that chapter on your life and to stop wearing the cultural symbols of mourning. You, you want to you communicate to the society and specifically to Boaz that you're available for marriage. So that's what she says for her to do. So she she tells her to go to the threshing floor in verse 3, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Again, this is just unclear. Why? Why does she need to hide at this point? I think Naomi's really overthinking the whole thing. And then we get to, to verse 5. It says, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I mean, it couldn't be more unclear. Go and uncover his feet, and then he will tell you what to do. Observe where he lies. Uncover his feet. Now, we don't understand this, reading this in, in 2020 in Brampton or in Mississauga or Georgetown or Milton. We, we don't necessarily understand this. Everything Naomi is saying here, listen, Naomi could be saying this completely innocently and not knowing what she's doing, but everything she's saying here is loaded with sexual connotations. So imagine a few generations back where, where a, a teenage girl were to, were, to, were to come home from a date with her, with her boyfriend and say, yeah, we went to go get a milkshake and then we went, we went out dancing to some rock and roll music and then we went parking. Parking your, there's, parking your car seems innocuous. It seems innocent. You just you put the car in park. But parking at that time meant something very, very different. For, for our generation, it may, you know, people say Netflix and chill, right? There, there, there are certain codes that you can say very innocently. And maybe Naomi meant these things innocently. But to uncover someone's feet, to watch where they lie down, and then for you to lie, it's, it's low with sexual connotations. And then he will tell you what to do. I mean, what, what is Ruth supposed to do in this situation? 
Naomi is sitting back, not taking any risk at all. She's totally making Ruth completely vulnerable. This could go really bad. She could have been discovered hiding around the threshing floor before everyone went to bed. She could have been discovered sneaking, tiptoeing around while everyone's sleeping. Boaz could have, could have, could have dismissed her and embarrassed her and woke everyone. This could have gone very, very bad. It was a very unclear plan. Even if we give Naomi the benefit of the doubt that she didn't intend any of these other connotations, it's still a very unclear plan. But again, we're noticing a change in Naomi, the way that she's thinking, the way that she's processing. See, Naomi was thinking at first that God's hand was only against her. But now she's seeing that God's hand is with her and with Ruth. But in her excitement at the, at the moving of God's hand, Naomi is trying to get her hands in there too. Naomi is trying to manipulate, which to, to manipulate means to take, like man, manual, to take something into your own hands. And what we see here is that God's plan to bless us is so strong and so powerful that even when we come up with weird plans that don't make any sense and that won't even work, God is still faithful in carrying out his own plan. So Ruth says in verse 5, all that you say I will do. Verse 6, it says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So it all plays out exactly how Naomi said for it to, to happen. And it's in this context where we see an unusual proposal. An unusual proposal. Now, Naomi did not say a thing about proposing to Boaz. Naomi did not say a, didn't tell Ruth to say anything. What Ruth does here is she runs an audible, okay? Marvin McCoody would be blessed by this illustration, but, but in, a, in a football game, you wonder when you see the quarterback like, like yelling random stuff, like, blue, 42, Omaha, Omaha, or they're touching their helmet. That's because they're looking at what's happening, what the defense has set up, and they're running an audible. They're changing the play on the fly. And that's what Ruth does here. This is kind of how our, my proposal to Lindsay worked out. The ring wasn't ready. I kind of, it just kind of happened. And that's what ends up happening here. It's an unusual proposal. Verse 7. When Boaz, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, that has nothing to do with drunkenness, just satisfaction, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. He was startled. He was cold. His, his feet were uncovered. And a woman lay at his feet. Verse 9, he said, who are you? Now again, Naomi told Ruth, do whatever Boaz tells you. Naomi didn't expect that Boaz was going to ask, who are you? But Naomi didn't factor in that it's pitch black. It's pitch black. We're, we're talking agrarian society pitch black. We, we, listen, growing up here in the city, you don't know what pitch black is until you're actually out in a field where there are no lights and you, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Boaz asks, who are you? So Ruth has to run an audible. Ruth wasn't told what to say. She was told to expect Boaz to say something. Verse 9, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She says, I am Ruth. Notice when Ruth talks about herself, she doesn't talk the way everyone else in the book talks about her, including the narrator. She doesn't say, I am Ruth the Moabite. She doesn't say, that doesn't define me. My lineage, my ethnicity, my background, that doesn't define who I am. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. This doesn't come through in English, but she mentioned earlier, she called herself a servant back in chapter 2, verse 13, but these are two different, two different words. The one word is sort of this lowly, unworthy servant, and the other form of servant is someone who's more elevated in culture and in society. And Ruth is referring to herself as, as, as more elevated now. She's changed the way that she thinks about herself. We're going to find out later, even all those around her have changed the way that they thought about her. And then she says, spread your wings over your servant. Now, I really admire Ruth. Again, Ruth is making this up on the fly. Ruth is clever, quick-witted, and exceptionally articulate. When she says, spread your wings over me, first off, she's hearkening back to something Boaz said to her in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, may you be blessed by God under whom you have sought shelter under his wings. So she's actually quoting Boaz's words back to him, which is so thoughtful. That this, she's referring to the first conversation that they had months ago. And then, not only is she doing that, is, is, is that when Ruth is saying, spread your wings over me, just like Boaz said that, that God could spread his wings over Ruth in terms of a covenant relationship with Ruth as she was aligning herself with the people of God, now Ruth is saying, Yes, I have sought a covenant relationship with God that he would spread his wings over me. But Boaz, I'm seeking a covenant relationship with you. I want you to spread your wings over, over me. Ezekiel chapter, chapter 16 gives that, that same image illustration as it relates to, uh, to marriage. Not only that, but the, the hem of your garment or the end of your blanket is called the wing, the canap. It's the same word. The same word for the wing on a bird and the hem of your garment is the same word. So not only is Ruth hearkening back to something Boaz said early, not only is Ruth using the, the metaphor of marriage when she's talking about wings, she's also saying, and it's cold. So can I please share some of your blanket? The way you feel with your legs exposed is how I feel because I don't have any sort of covering. So Ruth, in one simple sentence, communicates all of this thoughtfulness and intentionality to Boaz in this beautiful but unusual proposal. Again, Naomi said, let Boaz tell you what to do. And here's, Naomi, and here's Ruth telling Boaz what to do. It's completely backwards. And remember also, it's pitch black. She can't, like, the space between verse 9 and verse 10 is, like, infinite because Ruth is pouring her heart out. She's going all in. And she has no idea what, the, what expression is on Boaz's face. She has no idea what he's going to say. And look what he says in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord. You know, it's... It's interesting when you study Boaz as a character, really the first thing on his lips every time he meets someone or talks to someone is, may you be blessed by the Lord. 
He says it to his workers. He says it to Ruth when they first meet. He says it to Ruth here in the middle of the night. Blessing is on the tip of his tongue. Loved ones, what's on the tip of your tongue these days? When when people know that you're about to open your mouth, are they like, oh yeah, this is going to be good. He or she's going to talk, and I know I'm going to be blessed by it. Or do people sort of like brace themselves because they're going to expect something that's, that's harsh or that's critical? Now, Bo, the first word on Boaz's tongue so often was, was blessing, and we would do well to live a worthy life the way he did. But this is such, a, such an unusual proposal. Just think about all the cultural boundaries that Ruth leapt over to make this, to make this proposal. Just, I'll just show you them here on the, on the screen. Normally a man would propose to a woman, but we have a woman proposing to a man. Normally the older would propose to the younger, but the younger is proposing to the older. Boaz is wealthy, Ruth is poor, but she's the one who's proposing. She's the field worker proposing to the landowner. She's the foreigner from Moab proposing to the native Bethlehemite. It's so unusual. It's so unorthodox. And Boaz says to her, may you be blessed. And then he says in, in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, the word there is said, this last expression of selfless love greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You see, in Boaz's mind, he looks at how beautiful and lovely and strong and wise Ruth is, and, and Boaz says, you could have any man, rich or poor, you, you could marry for any reason, but you, you are marrying in a way, you are pursuing this courtship in a, in a way that is so honoring to me and also honoring to Naomi. You're not just thinking about yourself and how you're going about this. And he says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you what my ask, what you ask. For all my fellow tansmen know that you are a worthy woman. Remember, Boaz was called a worthy man in chapter 2, verse 1. Now Boaz is turning the table and calling Ruth a worthy woman. That phrase, worthy woman, occurs a couple of other times in the Bible. Most notably in the sayings of King Lemuel's mother, in Proverbs 31, verse 10. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase, but it's translated differently in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife. It's the same word. In fact, in Jewish Bibles, the, the book order is different. It doesn't follow the same, the same order. So in, our, in our Bibles, the book of Ruth comes after the book of Judges because it's kind of organized chronologically. It happens after the time of the Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 31, the book of Proverbs ends with, this is what a wise woman, an excellent life, an excellent wife, a, a, a worthy woman looks like. And then you have the book of Ruth, which is an example of Proverbs 31. You can read Proverbs 31 and see this, this woman who gets up early and stay, works late. This is Ruth. Ruth is, the, is, is such an example of the worthy woman. So this is an unusual proposal made by a worthy woman. Now, I, 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 I want to be careful here that we, we don't make so much about how unusual this proposal is. Because we, we know, 
because we believe the Bible that men are called to lead in marriage, in the family, in the church, as husbands, as, as elders, as spiritual leaders. It's clear. Men are called to lead. But I'm afraid sometimes that single young women and single young men's try to over-extrapolate what the Bible teaches about marriage and the church and apply it to courtship and dating. Like too often I, I hear a young woman say something like, well, I'm kind of interested in this guy, but I want him to take the, and yes, in an ideal situation, it's always better if the guy leads, if the guy takes the initiative. But listen, Taking the initiative doesn't always mean that you're usurping someone's authority or, or, taking, or taking away their leadership. A child can ask his mom if they can watch a movie together. The child takes the initiative. But the mom is the one who decides, is now a good time to watch a movie? Is the movie you're suggesting a pro? The mom is leading. The mom is in the position of authority and leadership, but the initiative came from the child. An employee can, can suggest a new project to, to their boss. The employee takes the initiative, but it's the boss who has to make the leadership decision. So can a single young woman start a conversation with a single young man? Yes. Can a single young woman ask a single young man on a date? Yes. Now, guys, I, <laughs> listen, young men today, you don't need any more excuse to be passive, okay? So what, listen, this is not letting you off the hook. What is normal is that you would take the initiative. But listen, women, and you can attest to this, guys don't always notice things. And they, and they may need a little push or a little shove from from you. So men, remember that you are called to lead and young women or single women of any age, single men of any age, remember that you taking the initiative doesn't necessarily mean that you're usurping someone's position of authority or leadership. So we have this unclear plan from Naomi and then this unusual proposal from Ruth and then, then comes an unexpected problem. I mean, everything seems to be going really well in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. More about that later. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's another redeemer? Remember, this idea of a goel, it's a kinsman redeemer. It's someone who's related to you. All of this has got started in Naomi's mind because, because Boaz was related to Elimelech. And what Naomi is hoping that Boaz will act on is Leviticus 25 specifically, which, which says if, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his, what his brother has sold. So what Naomi is hoping is that, Ni is that Boaz would, would buy back Elimelech's lamb. But she's also hoping that, that Boaz would, would follow not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law of Deuteronomy 25, this Leverite marriage. That the, although Boaz is not a brother of Elimelech, he is a relative, that he would actually marry Ruth. Boaz says, listen, I, want, I, I, I would love to, I feel honored that you would ask me to do both of those things. But he says, there is someone more qualified than me. There is someone who is a closer 
relative. So think about just the ups and downs, like Ruth following this crazy plan and then blurting out this proposal and then not sure how Boaz is going to react. And then it reacts favorably. And so you can picture her heart is just racing. And the, but then this news about this, this other redeemer. But again, notice how Boaz takes the lead. Young men hear this. So Ruth took the initiative, but, as, but from then on, Boaz takes the lead. So should Ruth go now? No. Boaz is very clear. Remain tonight. These are the days of the judges. As a young woman, you're not walking home in the, in the middle of the night. You're going to remain here. That's the best. It's kind of sketchy, but that's the best situation. Remain tonight. And in the morning, he's going to handle it. Notice he's going to handle it right away. In the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz takes the lead. He says, listen, we're going, to have this fault. we're going to have this figured out before breakfast. First thing in the morning, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take the lead here, Ruth. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it be known, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So he, so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. So he protected her that night. She needed leadership. I mean, Naomi's the one who got me here. I don't know how I'm going to get home. And Boaz just says, no, you're just going to stay here, okay? And then, so he protects her, and then he provides for her by giving these six measures of barley. Notice how she says, hold out your garment. I don't know if it's like when you're a kid. You know what I mean? You're collecting like rocks or dinky cars or something like that. Or, or maybe she took off like an outer cloak and then threw it, threw it over her back. We don't know how, what, what a measure is. We don't know how much a barley she took home. But with that barley, we see our fourth and final point here. It's an unwavering promise. An unwavering promise. Boaz says, listen, I'm going to handle this in the morning. I'm going to handle this right away. And, and you, are, uh, you, are go- you are going to know what your status is. This relationship is going to be defined by early tomorrow. He makes an unwavering promise, and he sort of, as a deposit, you know, there's no ring was exchanged, just barley, okay? We're not going back to that tradition, okay? I, I, I still think, I still, I, I still think a, a girl would like a ring. Not that a ring is necessary, that's just cultural, but I, I, I wouldn't give a bag, of, a bag of barley. But this is an unwavering promise. Notice how careful he is in verse 14 about um, making sure that they got up before anyone could recognize her. And then whoever was awake said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now again, nothing happened. Naomi's plan again was filled with sexually suggestive language, but nothing happened. In fact, all of that language and that that sort of intensity only highlights their purity. The Bible doesn't pull any punches about, about... declaring the sexual failures of its leaders, okay? Like, if, if something had happened, the Bible would have said that something had happened. But Boaz is careful not, not even to allow for the, for the appearance of evil. And remember, these were the days of the judges. People were doing whatever they, whatever they wanted. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. I mean, even the story of how the Moabite people had, got started, 
And, and, and then the, the history in, in, in the book of, of Numbers 20, chapter 25 about how they seduced the Israelite men. But here we have Boaz and Ruth conducting themselves in a world so filled with impurity, their purity stands out. And may that be true of us as a church family, that we would live lives of such purity and holiness that it would stand out in our world. So she comes back and Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Literally in Hebrew, it's the same question that Boaz asked. Who are you? Are you, a, are you an engaged woman? Did he propose to you? Are you cast aside? Who are you? Tell me your identity. How did you fare? At the end of verse 16, then she told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. The mother-in-law who said she came back empty. Boaz says, no, no, you make sure that you don't go back empty to her. Go back full. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Notice how confident Naomi is in Boaz's integrity. Boaz said, I'm going to handle it in the morning. And Naomi says, well, if Boaz said that, then it's going to be handled. It's, it's his, his, like what he says can be counted on. It can be, it can be trusted. And, she, and Naomi, Naomi says, the matter is going to be settled today. Unfortunately for us as a church family, it's going to be settled, Lord willing, seven days uh, from now. You can go ahead and read about how it was settled. But as we close today, I want to zero in on something that Boaz said in verse 12 where he said, there is a redeemer nearer than I. I think really Boaz spoke kind of as an accidental prophet when he said that, when he talked about another redeemer, a redeemer who was more qualified to help Ruth and Naomi, actually to help Ruth and Naomi with a problem that was bigger than barley and housing and marriage and life. Remember, th- remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and Leviticus 25. There's this, there's this need for land and then there's this need for marriage. Land and marriage. But in the background of this redemption, redemption of land and redemption in terms of marriage, there is a bigger redemption that's taking place. And there's, there's two sort of major concepts behind redemption as we see it in the Bible. The sense of powerlessness and the sense of payment. Wherever we see redemption in the Bible, the people who need to be redeemed are powerless and then some sort of payment must be made. And so a redeemer is someone who provides payment for a powerless family member. So Naomi and Ruth, they're, they're powerless. They're in a man-centered world. They're two widows. They have no source of income beyond a gleaning. They are powerless. And Boaz is willing to make a payment. He's willing to pay for Elimelech's land. And he's willing to take on the financial responsibility of looking after Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to make the payment. He's a redeemer. But again... The, the, the concept of redemption, even the fact that there were these redemption laws in the book of Ruth is because of redemption that happened earlier. It goes back to the book of, the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will 
redeem you. You see, the the whole rescue from Egypt, the people were out of their land and they were powerless as slaves. And remember, something else a redeemer could do in the Old Testament is to set free a family member who had been sold into slavery. So all of the redemption laws are based off the fact that Israel was a redeemed people. He brought them back to the land, the promised land. He set them free. And then you, so that's looking back, and then you look forward when the, when the people of Israel were exiled in Babylon. Again, they're separated from the land. They're not living in the land of their inheritance, just like Elimelech's family, just like Naomi. They're living in Babylon, and they're enslaved. And God says in Isaiah 62, 12, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. So here in the book of Ruth, the story of redemption, we see it's a bigger story. There's, there's the exodus and there's the exile on either end, but it goes even bigger than that. It's a story that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation, all the, all the way from the beginning to the end. I mean, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They, they, they've lost their inheritance, the land they don't have. They're not in paradise anymore. And they're enslaved to sin. And they need a redeemer. And then you come to Revelation chapter 5 at the very end and there's this, there's this big throne and then there's this scroll with all of these seals. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? They're looking for what? They're looking for a worthy man. They're looking for a Boaz. And this scroll, I mean, as the, as the seals are taken off this scroll, this is putting the world right. This is setting in motion the redemption, the redemption of the people who are enslaved, the redemption back to the land that Adam and Eve lost when they fell into sin. And they're looking for this worthy man, and then no one can be found. It says there's, there was no one worthy to open the scroll, and then John, who wrote Revelation, starts crying because there's no one worthy. There isn't a redeemer. There isn't a Boaz. And then someone tells him, no, 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 the lamb, the lion of Judah. And he looks and he sees this lamb standing as though slain. And this is the lion of Judah. And then all heaven erupts and says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed or you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So this tiny little story and tiny little Bethlehem. This little moment that happened in the middle of the night. Remember, there was another little moment in the middle of the night in Bethlehem when this, when this worthy one was born. And when he, he came to live and to, and to serve and to teach and to heal and lived a perfect life. He lived a life none of us could live and he died the death all of us deserve to die. And he was the worthy man. He was the redeemer. See, this small little story of redemption explodes out into Exodus and Isaiah, the, the, the exodus and the exile. And then it, 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 it explodes out even further from Genesis to Revelation. And it all points to Jesus as the Redeemer. So don't miss this. Don't miss this beautiful story of redemption. Don't miss it like the people in Jesus' day. Listen to what Jesus said to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Verse 37, hear these words. Jesus said, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus tells the people at his time, the people that 
that put him on the cross, he says, listen, I have long, I have come here to be your redeemer. How often I have wanted to put you under the shelter of my wings, to be a Boaz for you, to shelter you, to redeem you, and you would not have it. May that not be true of you today. If you're here, whether you're a part of Hope Church or someone sent you this link today, listen, do not miss this. Do not miss the fact that Jesus has come to redeem you, to set you free. The book of Ruth all centers around this land being restored, and then this beautiful, this beautiful marriage. And loved ones, the book of Revelation, the land is restored, the earth is renewed, and there's a beautiful marriage. Loved ones, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has come to do. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the worthy man. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Uh, the presence of your Spirit. We thank you for your living and active Word. We thank you that every page of it points towards the glory of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have made it possible for us to be set free from sin, for us to be forgiven of our guilt, for us to be justified, Lord, for us to be sanctified. Lord, we look around our broken world and so many in our world are powerless against the forces of evil. So often we feel powerless, Lord. But God, we want to seek shelter under your wings. Lord, we know that one day you will restore the land, Lord, not just Bethlehem or Jerusalem or the Holy Land. You will restore the entire planet. And Lord, you will have for yourself a bride, a holy and a pure bride, God. Help us to live out that identity. Help us to love you and serve you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for our online service today. You are loved.